Well, hopefully each of you got a handout here, and those were in the back as you came in. Those will be helpful for us this morning. We are in the middle of a verse-by-verse study of 1 Corinthians, and you might be joining us for the first time, and or you might be listening for the first time, or you might not be aware, but uh, we believe in preaching expositionally, which means we go through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, and explain that text and those verses, and then seek to apply that scripture to our life. And we believe this is God's word, so we believe this is how God speaks to us. You know, it's easy in a, in a book like this to go through the passages that you want to go through, maybe pick the things that are easy or that are enjoyable, but I think God has called us as a church to preach the whole counsel of God. Jesus told the disciples in the church that we are to teach all that he has commanded, Romans, or sorry, Matthew 28, 20. Paul testified as a pastor in Acts 20, 27, that he had declared to them the whole counsel of God. And so going verse by verse through a book enables us to be able to go through all the wisdom of God, the entire counsel of God. It's easy sometimes when you preach psalms like Psalm 103, like we did last week. It's easy to preach that because, you know, there's simple truths. It's kind of like the milk of the word. And sometimes it's easy to listen to it. But then you go through a text like we're in today, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and it's a little more difficult. So open your Bibles if you haven't already. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And this is what we might call the meat of the word. You're going to have to put your thinking caps on. You're going to have to pray and ask God to give you understanding. We're going to have to seek to apply this to our life, and it might be a little bit of work, but I think the Lord will bless this passage. We're really in the next section of 1 Corinthians. It goes from chapter 8 here through chapter 11. These four chapters really deal with Christian liberty issues. And Paul was writing these different topics about these different topics because he was responding to a letter that the Corinthian church had written to him. In fact, look in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, look at verse 1. I want you to notice this, because Paul says, I'm responding to what you wrote. 1 Corinthians 7, 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And then he responded, responded to them. And the first topic was marriage. And look, look down in chapter 7, verse 25. He brings up another issue that they wrote to him about. 1 Corinthians 7.25, now concerning the betrothed or those who are single. And then look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. This is the next topic, now concerning food offered to idols. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to consider the topic of Christian liberty and particularly how it relates to this illustration of food offered to idols. To idols. Now, how many of you this past week really struggled with wondering, wanting to know if you should eat meat offered to idols? I mean, how many of you went to Costco and you were looking at the meat and you're wondering, man, was that offered to Zeus? I wonder if I should eat that or not. This isn't a topic that really, as far as this particular uh, meat offered to idols, isn't one we really struggle with and wrestle with. But this was a major issue for the Corinthian church. Paul the Apostle, in Acts chapter 18, the Bible records that he went to Corinth and he preached the gospel. Many Jews came to Christ, but also many Gentiles. 
And if you were a Gentile, you were polytheistic, which means you worshiped many gods. And so I want you to imagine many people in this church at one time had feared these idols. They had praised these gods. They had worshiped these false gods. In fact, turn over with me to 1 Corinthians 12. I want to show this to you. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 2, makes it clear that many of these Christians turned from idol worship. 1 Corinthians 12, 2 says, you know that when you, that's the church, the church in Corinth, were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols or idols that don't speak. No idols speak. So all idols really is what he's talking about. But praise God, they turned from idol worship and trusted in Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. There's no God, there's no idol, there's no other person, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That's the gospel. There's one way to the Father. That's through Jesus. I was talking to someone on Friday, and uh, they found out I was a pastor, so they decided to tell me a joke. And the joke went something like this. They, you know, I was talking to them about uh, different things. And they said, oh, you're a pastor. Oh, I got a joke for you. What's the password to get into heaven? So it's a joke, right? So I said, I don't know what. He said, you're a pastor. You don't know that? <laughs> well, it's a pretty good joke. But then I decided to turn it and to something more serious. And I said, well, now seriously, I actually do know the password. It's Jesus. The Bible said, Jesus said of himself that, uh, for I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father but through me. So when you get to heaven, the only way to get into heaven is through Jesus. But I told him, I said, you have to have the password before you go. And it's not just a password. You have to give him your life. You have to believe in Jesus Christ with all your heart and that he has died and risen for you. And he's your Lord and Savior. But, but that's what these people did. They turned from their idols. They trusted in Jesus Christ. But even, even though they believed their past, their, their cultural conditioning didn't just disappear, right? Your former life before you came to Christ still many times affects your Christian life. And I don't really think we can fully appreciate the church of Corinth, partly because our culture is so different from that. In America, many of you, Many of us grew up in a Judeo-Christian society. Now, for the past 50 years, that's really been changing. It's now more and more a humanistic, secular, atheistic culture. In fact, we can probably pretty confidently say today that's pretty much what it is today. But for the Corinthians, they were in a society that was ultra-superstitious, where almost everyone prayed to some type of idol or idols, they feared these gods that were in the sky and they believed they were true. I mean, you picture a, a typical Roman in his home and there's a, there's a wall full of idols and he's bowing to these idols, he's praying to them. I looked up and found a prayer that was prayed back then to Apollo. This is the prayer. Blessings to Apollo. Pour out your blessings to me as I serve you. Shine your light into my life. Jupiter, make it so. Juno, see it done. Mer Marina, Mer I don't know how to say that. Blessed with wisdom. 
And the point is, you had all these different gods that they worshipped. One Greek poet estimated there were 30,000 gods they worshipped. I don't even know if you can know all their names. There were idols in the home. There were idols in the market. There were huge, elaborate, ornate temples that had these idols. There were local shrines. You had idols at work. There were idols in their schools. There was a God who could help every part of your life. There was a God who helped with your marriage, with your work. There was a God who helped give you healing, that protected your children, that gave you good luck, that gave you strength for the day. There was a God for pleasure, a God for money, a God for anything. There were Greek gods, Roman gods. There were Egyptian gods. Even the Caesar was a God, or so they said, and they believed. And if you're in a high school literature class or college literature class, you probably are reading about some of these Greek and Roman gods, right? But they actually believed that those myths were true, that there was a god Zeus. That's what they believed. There was a god Apollo. That's what, they, that's what they thought. And those stories they believed were true. And so if your husband was going out in a ship and he was going to be sailing somewhere, you would go to the temple of Poseidon and you would offer a sacrifice to that God in hopes that he would protect your husband. If your loved one was sick, you might pray to Apollo, who was the God of healing. If you were pregnant or if you wanted to get pregnant, you would sacrifice to the idol Aphrodite, the goddess of love. If your daughter or daughter-in-law wanted to get pregnant and you were really hoping she would, you might go and make a sacrifice a couple times that week to, so you can have some grandkids. And so you kind of see that the point of what's going on here is that this was a part of every part of their life. When they ate, you asked an idol to bless your food. When you went to work, you expected a certain God to help your business. Festivals, celebrations, birthday parties, weddings, baby showers were filled with idols. So that was life for these believers in Corinth. And so when you came to faith in Christ, you left the worship of those idols, but you didn't leave the city, right? They were all still around you. Your family and your friends likely still worship those idols. If you were a blacksmith, you might have had a boss that said, hey, we're, we're going to pray to this idol before work. Or maybe we're going to have a working lunch down in the temple, and there's a little restaurant next to the temple, and we're going to eat some meat, and it's, it's on, the, it's on the, the, our shop. We're going to eat together, and it's, all, it's a working lunch. So, you know, bring your work with you. Should you go do that? If you're a unbelieving, or if you have an unbelieving sister who's getting married, she probably has a feast that includes some type of meat that's been offered to an idol. Should you go to her wedding? Should you eat the meat there? If you want to buy meat at a market, it's probably been sacrificed at some point to some idol in a temple, and many of those temples served as slaughtering houses. And even many of the temples had these little restaurants attached to them that you could go and eat just like we would in our society. And so you understand that how complex this was. This wasn't just like, okay, there's a one place in Corinth where you worship idols. It was a part of everybody's life. So the church wrote and asked Paul about one aspect of this, and that was eating meat offered to idols. They weren't asking if they should worship idols. Like that was settled. They knew that was wrong. Right? They turned from those idols to worship Christ. But what about that, that meat that was left over from the sacrifices? 
I mean, you have an unbelieving neighbor who invites you over to eat, and you know they're unbelieving, so that probably means that they probably worship idols, which means they probably bless this food to an idol before they cooked it or after they cooked it, and so should you eat that meat? And so the illustrations go on. Should you eat that meat that has been sacrificed to idol? And what what should the decision be? I mean, they're looking for Paul to write an answer, okay, I'm the Apostle Paul, and here's my answer. By the authority of being an apostle, this is what you should do. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul says this is an issue of Christian conviction that is related to Christian liberty. And really the question in this area is, what should my Christian convictions be in this particular area? How do I come to a conclusion about this? Like, how do I as a person, come to a conclusion if I should go to my sister's wedding and and eat that meat that has been offered to idols? Like, how do I know if I should eat or I should not eat? Or let's just take some issues that we might have today. What about tattoos? Should I go this week and get a tattoo? Or maybe I should go this week and get a nose ring. Or maybe I shouldn't go get a nose ring this week. You want to have a vote on that? No, let's not do that. How about watching this TV show or that TV show? Should we get vaccinated or shouldn't we get vaccinated? Should you wear a mask or shouldn't you wear a mask? Should you send your kids to public school, Christian school, charter school, homeschool? What should you wear? And should we celebrate Christmas? Should we have our kids go trick-or-treating on Halloween? Like, these are issues that you're not going to find in the Bible, You're not going to go to a particular verse and it's going to say, thou shalt celebrate Christmas on December 25th, right? It's not there. So the question is, what should our Christian convictions be in these areas? And some people's approach is, well, it doesn't really matter. Just do whatever you want to do. And that's absolutely 100% false. Because every decision that we make before the Lord matters. It matters to God and it matters, it should matter to us. Romans 14, 12 says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And Romans 14 is talking about these areas, these Christian liberty issues. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we all, speaking of believers, must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so every day we're making decisions, and those decisions should matter to us. They matter to God. And every decision we make is based upon a personal conviction. The word conviction means a held belief, a firmly held belief or opinion. And every decision we make is based upon a personal conviction. Think about that. Every decision you make in life, every decision you made today and yesterday is because you had some type of conviction. You were convinced of something. Okay, so even think about today. You're wearing something right now because you were convinced of something. Maybe you were convinced that you wanted to dress up a little bit, or maybe you wanted to be more comfortable, or maybe because you wanted to make your spouse happy, and that's what they said you should wear, which is usually what happens to me on a regular basis. <laughs> or maybe it's like you don't really care, which is usually my case as well. And so you go in the closet, and you're like, first thing I see, I pull it out. But really, it's because you're convinced that it doesn't really matter, right? The point is, every decision you make is because of some type of conviction that you have. Your beliefs, your convictions inform your decisions, and that is true of every part of your life. And so as a, as a Christian, we must ask, what should those convictions be? 
And so I think what we see in 1 Corinthians here, Paul is instructing us how to glorify God as you establish Christian convictions and then apply your Christian convictions to your life. 1 Corinthians 8, Paul instructs you how to glorify God as you establish and apply your Christian convictions. And so this morning, we are going to look at truths about Christian convictions that enable us to glorify God. And the truth is, we're only going to get through number one here, okay? So number two and three, we'll have to wait to next week. And part of that's because I really want to convince you of number one. I think many times when we preach texts like this, we can skip over number one and assume people know that's true. But I really want to highlight this because I think and I believe this is true and I think it will be helpful for us. Christian convictions must be informed by the scripture. Christian convictions must be informed by the scripture. Look at verse 1, 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Now concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols... We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. We'll stop right there this morning. In ESV, you can see in verse 1 that there are quotes around all of us possess knowledge. That's because the translators were identifying that Paul was quoting the previous Corinthian letter. So in a previous letter, they asked Paul and they said that all of us possess this knowledge, and they were arguing that they could eat meat offered to idols based upon the knowledge of God's word. And what knowledge is that? Well, it's the knowledge about idols, that idols are nothing. They're just a piece of stone or 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 a rock or some type of metal or maybe a piece of wood. They're nothing. And we all know that there's not multiple gods. There's only one God. And so if you look at verse one, they wrote, all of us possess knowledge, That knowledge is a reference to the knowledge of God's word. They were saying, we all know what the scripture teaches. Therefore, we can eat this meat offered to idols. In fact, notice Paul quotes them again in verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, so he's going to quote them again, that an idol has no real existence. And, another quote, there is no God but one. And the Corinthian church was right on one hand. What the Bible taught about idols and about a God, they were right about what God taught about idols. They were right about what the scripture taught about idols and about God. But they were wrong in how they applied that to their brothers and sisters. They were wrong because they lacked love for their brothers and sisters. And you can see that in verse one. This knowledge puffs up but love builds up. And again, we're going to focus more on the love aspect next week, but I want to come back and hone in on this idea of the knowledge of the scriptures because Paul actually is agreeing with them in what the Bible teaches about, um, the Bible teaches about idols and about the nature of God. Look at verse four. 
Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, he says, we know that an idol has no real existence. In fact, we read Isaiah chapter 44 today, and that was very clear from that passage, right? They have eyes that are carved out, but they can't see. They have hands, but they can't move. An idol is nothing. It's just a piece of substance there, right? There's nothing to that idol. Many of the Corinthians in the church said, we can eat meat because, listen, that idol is nothing. It's not like when someone blesses a piece of meat and they they do it in in the name of an idol. It's not like the molecular structure of that meat changes, right? I mean, that idol isn't really blessing that meat. It's just still a piece of meat. Another reason they gave was because there is only one God. Look at verse 4. At the very end, there is no God but one. Verse 5 says, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven and earth, and notice, quote-unquote, so-called gods. In other words, there's not real gods. There's only false gods. There's so-called gods. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. And so what he's saying is a lot of people, yes, do believe in these multiple gods, but they're not real. They're not true. I agree with you, Corinthian church. That's what he's saying. I agree with you. In fact, let me tell you how I agree with you. This is who our God is, verse 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul pauses here to agree with the Corinthian church about their scriptural knowledge in regard to eating meat. And so so Paul presents here that God is one, but also that God is one. He's one being, but God is also a multiple of persons. He's three persons. God is a trinity. One God, three persons. Some people call verse 6 the New Testament Shema. Shema means to hear. The Old Testament Shema comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. You can look it up if you want, but there it is right there. This is in the Legacy Standard Bible. Old Te- the Old Testament Shema is one of the most common prayers prayed by the Jewish people. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, or this translation says, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. This passage is one of the clearest passages that affirms God is one being, one essence. There's not multiple gods. There's only one God who has ever existed. And his personal covenant name is Yahweh. That's in the ESV translated the Lord. So Yahweh is one. In fact, notice here in Deuteronomy 6.4, Yahweh is our God. The word God in Hebrew there is Elohim. What's interesting is that Elohim is a plural. So Deuteronomy 6, 4, this Shema, this is what we're supposed to hear, declares that Yahweh is one being, but eternally exists in the plurality. And of course, we know from the fuller revelation of Scripture, it's a plurality of persons. One God, one being who is God, who eternally exists as Father Son, and Holy Spirit. We call that the Trinity. Tri is three. uh, Unity is one. So three in one. So we believe that God 
eternally exists and works as one God in three persons. And so he works, exists and works from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Now, these, these prepositions here are actually very, very important. In fact, look at verse 6, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and you can see that here. Verse, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, notice, from whom are all things. So all things, that includes all creation, all angels, all providence, all salvation, all things are from God the Father. So he's the source. He's the planner. So from whom are all things. And then also notice, for whom we exist. In other words, we exist for him, for his glory. And then notice, the Father fulfills his work through the Son. Verse 6 says, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Notice this preposition. Through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Jesus Christ is the second person of the Godhead. And verse 6 says that Jesus Christ, it's from Jesus Christ through, or through whom are all things. And so God the Father, he planned creation. He initiated creation. And then Jesus is the one who fulfilled his Father's will by speaking it into existence. The Father planned salvation, and he sent his Son to accomplish it. And it's through Jesus that all things exist. In fact, you can see that there. Through whom we exist. Everything right now is held together by the power of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. We are saved and held by the power of Jesus. So 1 Corinthians 8, 6 is one of the clearest passages on the Trinity. And there's many applications to this. and We could go through that. But my recommendation would be to go back to March 2022 and look up my sermon series on the Trinity. It's a three-week sermon series. And maybe that would help you know how to apply this to your life. But also, you can kind of look at this and maybe be a little bit overwhelmed. Maybe even confused by it. And I would say to you, welcome to humanity, right? We are, we are finite beings. We are not going to be able to fully comprehend an infinite God, at least not on this earth. It will take us eternity to do so. And so we should stand in awe of the Lord and also trust what he says about himself is true. But what's the point of all this? Why bring this up in this text right here? Well, again, some in Corinth wrote Paul saying it was their Christian conviction that they had the right to eat meat offered to idols because an idol was nothing. And there's only one God anyways, the one true triune God. Scripture was on their side. And Paul agreed with their Christian conviction, but not how they treated other Christians whose conscience would not let them eat. In other words, yes, Scripture backed up their right to eat. But there was something more important to their right. And what was that? It was loving their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so you can see that in verse 1. He says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And it's not that knowledge isn't important. No, it is important. But you can't just have knowledge. You must also have love as well. But notice verse number 7, because we're really focusing more on this idea that 
our Christian conviction should be based upon the knowledge of God's word. And so look at verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. Paul was speaking here of recent converts who came out of idol worship. And though they turned from worshiping those idols to worshiping and trusting in the one true God, their consciences still viewed those idols as real gods. I mean, think about it. From birth, you were taught to fear these gods. You were taught that if you said a certain word or a certain phrase or you, you looked at an idol in a certain way or you prayed to an idol in a certain way, something would happen to you. You come to Christ, you realize that that's all false. But the truth is, experientially, it still feels real to you, doesn't it? Because it was how you were conditioned to think. Your conscience was conditioned in that way. Romans 2.15 teaches that each person has a conscience. And what is the conscience? The conscience is that inner person, that inner consciousness that either accuses or excuses you. It's an inner voice that says you are doing something right or wrong. Yesterday, we went to Costco, as, you know, half the families in Simi Valley did. And we were like every other cheapskate at Costco. We wait, went there and ate all the samples. You guys do that when you're there? Some of you are like, we don't go there. Okay, that's probably why. At one stop, we went, you know, you go there, you kind of do the grab and go. You know what that means? In other words, the samples aren't there very long, so you better grab it and go while you can. So we were going, you know, and waiting for them, and then we'd get it and eat it, and so we were doing that, going around. And the truth is, how that kind of works is I don't do any shopping. I just go around with the kids, and I take care of the kids and have snacks, and we see mom at the very end. Anyways, at one point, I saw a little booth there, table, that had a napkin and a piece of an ice cream bar on it. It was a super small sliver. You know, one of those. And so we're just grabbing and going. So you grab it and go and you put it in your mouth. And I'm walking along and I realize, oh, oops, I shouldn't have probably done that. My conscience told me that you were guilty. And then one of my kids piped up and said, Mom, Dad just ate an ice cream bar. So not only my conscience, but also one of my kids there as well. But, but my conscience accused me because I had told Dana that I'm not going to eat sugary things like that. And I had told myself, look, I'm not, I don't want to do that. And so my conscience was informed by my desire for integrity to keep my word. And so it accused me. The word conscience is a compound word. Con means with, and science means knowledge. So it's the idea of with knowledge, with knowledge. So your conscience is informed by your knowledge. And it either accuses you or it excuses you. So if your conscience is telling you to stop doing something or your conscience is telling you to do something, it's based upon what you know or you think is right or wrong. And for us as Christians, the knowledge of right and wrong comes from where? From the scriptures. And so we must study the scriptures to know the knowledge of God so that we can have our convictions based upon the knowledge of God. And so that our consciences can be calibrated to God's word. But we also recognize, because of our culture, because of our society, because of our past, that our consciences are also affected by other things. Our consciences are, are affected by our society. Some view the conscience like the good angel, bad angel. Remember Tom and Jerry? They had that little angel on here that said, you know, 
good angel said, do this. Bad angel said, don't do that. You know, and he had to see who he was going to obey. And that's a really terrible illustration of the conscience, okay? And I only bring it up because a lot of times people think of the conscience in that way. It's an inaccurate, inaccurate illustration of the conscience. Your conscience is really more like a gauge in your heart. It's like a gauge that constantly needs to be calibrated. Think about a speedometer that has a gauge that tells you how fast you're going. You know, you're zipping down the, the road, and all of a sudden you see the woo, the lights behind you, you hear the light, you hear the siren, and police officer pulls you over. And you know, you look down, and you're like, well, I was only going 65 miles an hour. And so police officer comes up and says, You were going 80 miles an hour. You say, Officer, my speedometer only said 65 on here. What's the officer gonna say? Well, get the speedometer fixed. Right? Because your speedometer can be wrong. Now you might say, I, I think maybe your gun is is wrong. Because <laughs> like, actually that could be wrong too, okay? So maybe you go to court and you fight that. But the point is you have a gauge that tells you how fast you're going. And it's only accurate to the degree that it's feeding it the right information. Or I might go into my bathroom and get on my scale and I look down and I'm like, wow, I've lost 20 pounds in one night, right? And then I find out later that one of my kids messed with that on the bottom and it has to be recalibrated. And so therefore I realize, no, I actually gained weight <laughs> overnight. And, and the point is, is that our consciences are like a gauge. We need to take God's word and calibrate our conscience with the knowledge of the word of God. So the number one primary source of information for our conscience must be from God's word. But also, like I said earlier, our background, our culture will, will affect our consciences. They will affect how we think. And for some of the new believers in Corinth, they had just exited idolatry and their consciences were calibrated to look at an idol and to fear it, to think that thing was real. And yes, the scripture told them something else, but think about it. For years, their consciences had been calibrated that way. And so that didn't just go away in a blink of an eye. And so look at verse 7, Paul wrote, however, not all possess this knowledge. And it's not just informational knowledge. I think he's speaking here of experiential knowledge. It's like you have thought this way, you've lived this way for so long. You might know what the Bible teaches. You know there's only one God, there's no other gods. But then you look at those idols and you remember those times where you worship those idols and your conscience is still telling you, you know, that thing's real, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come get you. In fact, look at the entire verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. So they think this really is, has been blessed by this God. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So Paul said they have a weak conscience. And I want to clear something up here because he's not talking about them being less spiritual. Weak, a weak conscience isn't a gauge of your spirituality. It's the sensitivity within your conscience. And it was that former association of idol worship that was still informing their conscience that they were not to eat that meat. And this, the truth is, this happens to all of us. Every one of us in here has certain areas that our conscience is more sensitive in. And actually, the truth is, in regard to what we're going to talk about a little bit later in regard to the, some of the moral law, we should be very, very sensitive in regard to God's 
law and in our conscience. But in regard to Christian liberty issues here, we all have areas in which our conscience is weaker and other areas which our conscience is stronger. So I think about a couple examples. One example is some of you, when you were growing up, you were taught never to wear a hat in a house. Like never wear a hat in a building like this. When you prayed, you took your hat off and you did anything that was, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance, whatever it was, you took your hat off, right? And you were taught like that's, and so when the pledge you know, is, is said, or when there's the national anthem comes on, or we come in a building like this, you, you take it off automatically. And your conscience, frankly, is a little weak in that area, right? It doesn't mean you're an unspiritual person. It just means you're sensitive to that. You, you're in your heart saying, that's disrespectful. I got to take this off. And some of you wear a hat all the time. You were never taught that. You were never told that. Like, you go to bed in a hat, right? And for you, it doesn't matter to you. And, and, and so it kind of helps you understand, like, it's, it's not a matter of spirituality. It's a matter of sensitivity, to a particular thing. Or I think about wearing shoes in the house. For some people, if you were to walk inside of their house with your shoes on, you would be disrespecting their home. And, and for other people, they really just don't care, right? Sometimes they wear bare feet. Sometimes they wear shoes. They just really don't care. And so the point is we all have different areas in our life that we are sometimes more weak in our conscience and sometimes we're stronger. So, so the question is, what is important? What is important is that all of our Christian convictions are based upon God's word and our consciences are calibrated with God's word. And what we're going to see next week is that it's not just knowing what's true, but also therefore living that out in love and seeking to love one another. And again, I'm not going to go into that this week, so let's just skip that and keep on this one point here. Christian convictions must be informed by Scripture. Because I think that this is probably an area where we, we assume people know this. But then I hear in our society and sometimes in our church and with Christians, you hear people say, you know, that they're looking for advice or looking for counsel, and they don't go to God's Word and look for that. Or they're trying to make a decision about something, and they're not considering God's Word. And so I really think to really get the next two points of our outline, you have to really get this first one, and that is that it is so important that all of our Christian convictions are informed by the Scripture. In fact, would you turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? I just want to show this to you, particularly in this book, because this was written to the church of Corinth. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 4. Our convictions and our beliefs must be sourced in the knowledge of God found in the scripture. Verse 4, chapter 1. I, Paul, give thanks to my God always for you. That's the local church. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So God gave them grace, grace that saved them, grace that sanctifies. That in every way you were enriched in him, that's in Christ. And notice this. In all speech, that's the word logos, that's the word word, and all knowledge, that's gnosis, the same word we find in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 for knowledge. So Paul said God saved you and he enriched you with the word and with knowledge. So the riches for the church were found here in God's word and in the knowledge of God found in God's word. And their decisions of faith were to come from the scriptures. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. In fact, I'll go ahead and put it on the screen up here as well, just in case 
you're having a hard time flipping there. First, Second Corinthians, sorry, Second Corinthians two fourteen. Second Corinthians two fourteen. Paul thanks God. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And then notice this, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So when we're giving the gospel, we're giving the knowledge of God. In fact, look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God, verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of dark, darkness. So when God spoke light into existence, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the what? The knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The knowledge of God through Christ is the gospel. And we were, when we were saved, God illumined our hearts to understand who he is and what he's done. That's the gospel. And then we were saved. And the last text is probably one you're familiar with. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 16 and 17, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, you can turn there or you just look up on the screen. All scripture is breathed out by God. So here, here you have scripture. It comes from God through the spirit, it's infallible, it's inspired, and it's profitable. So here's the knowledge of God found in the scripture. And what does it tell us? It tells us teaching for teaching. That's what's right. For reproof, that's what's wrong. For correction, that's how to make the wrong right. For training in righteousness, that's how to keep going the right way. So think about that. The scripture gives us information about what's right, what's wrong, how to keep doing what's right, how to correct the wrong and make it right. And then, verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, may be mature, equipped for every good work. So the authority for all of our Christian convictions must be based upon God's word. And you say, well, what does that include? Again, it includes everything. Does it include salvation? Absolutely. Does it include our view of the scripture of, of revelation? Yes. How about sexuality and gender? Yes, the Bible must be our authority in regard to my body and what I do with it. How about for the church? How about for a worship service? How about for a philosophy of ministry? Absolutely. How, do, how about for what you watch on TV? How about what you put on every day? Yes, even for those things. And I think this is where it gets to be confusing for some people. It's like, well, I can point to a verse where it talks about some things, but, but where does the Bible talk about clothing? Or where to send your kids to school? Or if you should get vaccinated or not? Like, where does the Bible talk about that? Is there a verse in the Bible where it says, thou shalt wear a mask when you go into Target? I mean, right? Is it, where is that at in there? And so that's, that's where people get confused. And so what I did for you, I gave you a piece of paper if you didn't get one, you can get one on the way out. And I think it's a helpful chart. The scripture gives us different categories of importance in regard to different Christian convictions. And I think it's helpful for us to understand there's different levels of Christian conviction. And Christ even um, delineated that there's a difference, that there's some things are war, more weighty. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus rebuked the religious elders, and he says, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, of the scripture. He's saying, like, there's some things that really matter more than some of these other things. They all matter. Don't get Jesus wrong. But he's saying, there are some things that matter more. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, for I delivered to you as of first importance. What was that? 
that Christ died and rose again. That's the gospel. That's a weightier matter. If you're walking up to someone on the street and you see them and they're, you know, wearing a certain political slogan on there, you know, probably the most important thing at that moment isn't to argue with them about that slogan or who they voted for. If they're not a believer, the most important thing is what? To give them the gospel. It's a more weighty issue. So that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about there are, there are differences in levels of Christian conviction, and it's good for us to discern that. So let me just help you think through this. Because the, the first really tier, the first level of Christian conviction is essential gospel convictions. These are essential convictions you must believe to be a Christian. These are things like that salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Like you can't get to heaven by your works. It's not by your effort. It's only by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's an essential gospel conviction. The word of God is inspired. It's authoritative over my life. The, the law of God. The Bible says, thou shalt not murder. So if you think you can be a Christian and go out and start killing people, you know, it's, it's not true, right? It's, these are essential things for you to understand. The law tells us we're a sinner. You must believe you're a sinner. So scripture is clear about these gospel truths. There's no debate. And we, as Christians, are to hold firm to scriptural knowledge by faith with a good conscience. And we're to, the Bible says, fight, contend for the faith, not fight with people, but fight for truth. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.19, hold fast to faith in a good conscience. And so, and these are, these are doctrinal convictions that we must unify on. We really must unify with all Christians on in these areas. So again, if you're going to talk to someone that needs the gospel, this is really of first importance. And then the second, the second level of Christian conviction is really urgent doctrinal convictions. These are urgent doctrinal convictions for your own spiritual health, but not necessary for you to be a Christian. In other words, you can be a Christian... And some of these you can be confused on, or some of these you might be incorrect on, and you can still be saved. But spiritually, it's not going to be best for you. So here are some examples. Spiritual gifts, church membership, church polity, worship, philosophy of ministry, eschatology, church unity, gossiping, giving in the offering, serving the church, scripture reading, prayer. I mean, these are all things that the scripture is clear about. And we as a church should seek to unify around these convictions. And so when we do a church membership class, we go through some of these and we say, here are church convictions that we have. And they're not just something we came up with. It's from the word of God. Here's a verse that talks about it. Here's why we believe this. And these are convictions that don't determine your salvation. They don't say if you're saved or not saved, but they do affect your sanctification. And the scripture is clear about these doctrinal truths. And we need to grow in our scriptural knowledge of this. And that's what we're doing here this morning. That's what we're doing when we go to a Sunday class. We're seeking to know the word of God more, to obey the word of God and do that with a pure conscience. And then the last, oh, I didn't put that one up there. Can you believe that? That's what happens. And the last one is really what we're talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And it's Christian liberty issues. Romans 14, 1 calls these disputed things. These are Important convictions for your spiritual growth, but not issues that we should divide over. These are 
Issues like meat offered to idols. Well, it's probably not one you're struggling with, so let's throw some other ones out there. Schooling, dress styles, tattoos, vaccines, masks, celebrating certain holidays. We mentioned some of them earlier. That's what we're talking about here. Scripture gives no clear directives about these issues. Some people might speak dogmatically about them, and the Bible says this, and then it's like, ah, don't, actually, I don't think you're uh, reading that, or I think you're coming up with your own, coming that up from your own head. But the scripture does not give any clear directives, but does provide principles, and we are to apply those by faith. And we must continue to grow in our knowledge of the scripture and gain wisdom from the scripture. And we are to strengthen our consciences while we apply these Christian convictions in love. And so the last one says, you may differ in these convictions, but we must all pursue love. I thought I'd just end with some examples to help us with this. And then we're going to go into next week and talk about how to love each other in these areas. But just think about idols, okay? That's a neutral one for us, at least. So let's, let's think about essential gospel convictions. Is it right for us to bow down and worship an idol? Is it ever right for us to make a sacrifice to an idol, to pray to the idol in hopes that it will do something for us? The answer is absolutely no. It's not righteous. You should never do that. It's sinful. If you look in 1 Corinthians 10, 7, Paul says, do not be idolaters. So he actually warns the church here, don't worship idols, right? That's always wrong. How about this one? You have a friend who used to come to Lighthouse here, and they're Christian. They used to be a member of the church, but uh, they don't come anymore because the church removed them from church membership because this person was worshiping idols. This person has idols in their home, and they just did not want to stop bowing to those idols and and praying to those idols. And so they say, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe in this and this and this and this. And so, but you're really best friends with them. And so you're going golfing with them and you're having them into your house and their families are best friends with your family. And here's a question. Is it right for you to do that? Is it right for you to hang out with them, be friends with them? So this this is a second urgent doctrinal conviction here. Because the Bible actually is very clear about this. Now, some of you might say, I think it's fine. Well, here's the question. Do you know the scripture? Like, have you calibrated your conscience to the scripture? And it could be that you're uninformed, that you do not know, right? In fact, if you have your Bible open to 1 Corinthians 5, especially if you're not convinced of this, 1 Corinthians 5.11 makes this very, very clear. You should not fellowship with that person. 1 Corinthians 5.11. But now I am writing to you, and this is the plural you, this is the local church, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, so anyone who's a Christian, if he is guilty, and the idea of guilty there is that the local church has declared that this person that was a member of the church is no longer a part of the fellowship. They're not repentant. They're continuing to sin by worshiping idols, and that's what we're going to see about in a second. He's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or, notice the next one, idolater. And then he says at the very end, not even to eat with such a one. So your friend claims to be a Christian. He worships idols. The church declare that this person is an idol worshiper and they're not repenting. If you are friends with them and you hang out with them and you go golfing with them, you should definitely call them to repentance, but you shouldn't do those things. And so what you need to do is you need to grow in your scriptural knowledge and then Calibrate your conscience in regard to that. You must seek to unify with Scripture in the church in this conviction. 
But what about your family is going to go to the market tomorrow and you're going to go to, to Whole Foods or whatever it is. It's not one in the area, but you're going to go to Walmart. And uh, there's some meat there. And it says, you know, um, right above it, it says, you know, thank you, Zeus, for this meat or whatever. And you're like, whatever, <laughs> just a piece of meat. You know, it's like nothing happened to this piece of meat, you know. Or, or you go to a market and you know the guy that owns the market as a certain, nomina- a certain religion and he worships idols. Can you eat that meat? Can you buy that meat, take it home, cook it on the grill, and have it for your family? Well, 1 Corinthians 10, 25 says, yes, eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. Why? For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 25, and 26. There's a principle. All food is God's food. That's the principle there. So you can eat that meat. It's okay. This is really a, a, a third important personal conviction. This is that third category there. However, you might take along your friend to go shopping with you, and this person has just become a believer. And they, they look at that meat, and they see, oh, Zeus, bless that. And they go, oh, no, that's terrible. Like, I know that. And their conscience won't let them buy it. So what should you do? Don't buy the meat, because you love that person. And what, you can, I, what I really challenge you to do is go through these different levels of Christian conviction and try to categorize things. Take, take a topic and, and try to think, okay, what are some ways that, that this might apply to the first one, a second one, a third one? Like take dress, for instance. How might someone put dress in an essential gospel conviction? Someone might say, if you dress a certain way, if you wear something in the back of your head, if you, if you don't wear these clothes, if you don't wear these buttons, then you earn favor with God, right? Mennonite or some Mennonite, some um, Amish, some Jewish people. Like It's like you wear a certain thing and God is pleased with you. Is that true? No. Like, if you think you're getting to heaven because you wear something, then that's an essential gospel conviction. Like, that's not true. You can only be saved by grace through faith. But how about, how about the second one? What if, what if, and I don't mean to be crude, but just as I'm trying to think of an illustration on the top of my head here, what if someone, college students at a football game, and, and maybe they get dared to take their clothes off and run across the field, right? And you're like a crazy college student. You're like, yeah, whatever. Well, it should click in your mind. The Bible is clear that, that nakedness is a sin. You should be shamed by that. And, and that's only for a married couple. That, that's not something that should be public like that. So that, that is a clear Bible issue. And so that should restrict that person from saying, no, I, I think I, that's not something for this context right now. Or how about the last one? What, what dress for the important personal conviction? Well, there's a principle in the scripture that says modesty is important. What happens sometimes is people put that all the way to number one or even number two. But you realize if you were to go to Ohio and maybe go to a really conservative Mennonite area, some people would think modesty is wearing a dress, maybe, maybe poof sleeves. I don't know, you know. But if you go over to like Indonesia or a place like that, if you wear a dress, you're considered a prostitute. And, and so for them, you see a lot of them wearing long sleeves and long pants. And the point is, is there's different contexts. And so you might, you might have a, a certain conscience in one place than the other if you grew up in that area. And so the, my point is, is, is take this and, and consider how you, should, how you should apply the scripture in certain contexts. But I think the overriding thing I want to get across this morning is that in every area of life, whether it be first level, second level, third level, no matter what it is, every area of life, we should seek to apply the scriptures to our lives. The scripture has authority over us and every conviction that we have should be based upon the scripture. And the next week we'll see it should be done in love. And we should do that in love. 
let me maybe encourage you when we dismiss here in a moment, maybe, maybe with someone you trust, <laughs> maybe you can have a conversation about this and, and pick an area and see if you guys can think about different categories here. But it's, this is important. It's important to God. It's imp- it should be important to us. And we should submit ourselves to the Lord in regard to our Christian conviction. Let's pray.